I have a, an encouragement a little bit later I want to give to Natasha, actually, who's completely ignoring me at present. Uh, but I, I, I'm not going to do it now. It's, it's to do with the unity of the faith and trying to link in some a question that Nick asked yesterday about a unified response. But I, I just want to give one comment. You can discard it completely if it's not helpful to you. But it was something that Bill Mount said, actually, on this issue of perseverance of the saints and Mance calls himself kind of a two and a half point Calvinist. I don't know what that means, but he ministered for a long time in a Wesleyan seminary. Um, Azusa, he says, was a Wesleyan or mostly Arminian university at the time. And he just said, pastorally in dealing with some of this issue of perseverance and that he said he would go to his Arminian friends and say, um, so you're saying if someone stops believing in Christ, they lose their salvation. And they would say more or less, to simplify, yes. And he would go to his Calvinist friends and say, you're saying that if you don't persevere in salvation until the end, you're lost forever because you were never saved, to simplify. And they would say, essentially, yes. And he was saying, well, instead of worrying about all of these issues that people talk about which are important surely no matter who we're dealing with we should be encouraging them to persevere in faith until the end because both of us are saying if you don't you don't inherit final salvation so i think the challenge to us in some of those kind of circumstances is just to say we need to be preaching the gospel and living the gospel and we need to be conscious that we are being saved and if the warnings of Scripture don't make us test our own hearts and when we get rebuked and we're living in sin, we don't come back to the right path, well, we're in trouble no matter which theological system we come from. So let's keep our eyes on the Lord and persevere till the end in trusting Christ alone. Okay, that's for me. By the way, that, that is kind of how I wrap up my Hebrew 6 section in my commentary, is by saying something to that effect. You haven't read it yet. Shame on you. Okay. <laughs> well, you don't need to because you've got it right there. That's great. All, all right. He paraphrased it. That's right. All right. Look at, uh, look at chapter 2. I, I want us to deal just for a minute with 17, and then we're going to look at 3, 1 through 6 together. But uh, before we do that, just sum up those implications that some of you gave that were just very good uh, there the last time. If you think about uh, this, and we didn't emphasize this uh, quite as much at the end, but we did at the beginning, uh, think about a posture of thanks in difficult times of ministry. So Paul's in a, remember, he's in a really difficult moment, and he even raises this moment when he's kind of uncertain, he's um, not finding Titus. Later in chapter 7, he's actually going to say, I had conflicts without fears within as I went into Macedonia. But, but what he does, again, is he pulls us back to praise of God. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Because he is always leading us in triumphal procession in Christ. It does pull our attention back to the fact that Christ is victorious. We serve the Lord of the universe. And uh, part of what, again, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 is saying is we don't yet see all things submitted to him, that's uh, Psalm 110.1, until his enemies are put under his feet. But 
Christ really is Lord, and we know at the end of the age, all of those enemies are going to be decisively put under the feet of Christ. So isn't it going to be glorious one day when death no longer is a reality? It's going to be great. When, uh, when all the different ravages of sin on this world are going to be eradicated because Christ has eradicated them. That's, it's just going to be a, a wonderful, wonderful thing to experience. So you and I should, when we are entering times of difficulty, we should have this impulse to praise God, to enter into blessing God even in those times uh, spreading the knowledge in every place as you and I just live out the gospel in this world. We, are, we should be, as I said, wafting out the gospel on people uh, around us. They should just kind of pick up the scent of Christ, if you will. Uh, you know, it's, again, interesting being in a new place. We've already, already in the first five weeks, we've had a couple of people just ask us about our marriage or, or whatever. Uh, you know, these things just... They just see some differences, and they begin kind of picking up that something's different here and uh, open up spiritually. Like our landlady is only in her early 30s. She's actually getting into the, into the real estate business in Vancouver because her mom owns our townhouse, and her mom's kind of getting her in. And the other day, we went by to drop off our rent checks uh, for the, the rest of the year, which is kind of how it works in Vancouver, and we started talking about parenting and, and she just almost wouldn't let Pat go because we started talking some about marriage and parenting, and, and, and Aaron is her name. She's not a believer, but she said, we just don't have enough time to talk about this right now. Can we get together and talk about some of these things? Why? Because she's attracted. She's drawn to what she's hearing, uh, and she feels a need in her own life. And I think she's, she's smelling the scent of the gospel there, even though she doesn't know it, right? Um, angst over responses to the gospel, that can... That can, if you're a sensitive person, that can be very real. Uh, whether somebody is rejecting you or they're rejecting Christ and your burden for their soul. Um, the last two years, I was on, on a panel discussion, ongoing panel discussion at the local synagogue in Jackson, Tennessee. And the rabbi and I became really good friends. They, they came to me initially and said, we want to have this series of panel discussions over two years and talk about the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, and we want you to come and just explain to us about Christianity. I said, now, wait a minute. You guys know who I am, and you know where I'm coming from in terms of, of evangelical Christianity. You're sure you want to do this? They said, oh, yeah, we do. And I got to, as a New Testament scholar, I got to talk about Judaism and Christianity in the first century and all this kind of stuff, and we were going into another series this year, and I wasn't going to do it because of our big move, and they said, well, really what we want to do is unpack the theology of Judaism and Christianity. Would you come and do that? And I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And, but, the, but the rabbi and I got to be really close friends, and, and I said to him at one point, I said, John, you know, I'm, it's lovely that you and I can be good friends and talk through all these things. But at the end of the day, if Jesus Christ really is Lord of the universe, it matters. It matters. And so he and I are keen friends, but I'm still praying that God would bring him to himself through Christ, that he would come to know Yeshua. And that burdens me. It does. So we feel angst in different ways over responses to the gospel. And then uh, celebrating the victory of Christ. We, we ought to have a lot of joy uh, in the faith as the people of God. Fleming Rutledge says this, only the, this power, this transcendent victory won by the Son of God is capable of reorienting the cosmos to its rightful creator. 
This is what the righteousness of God has achieved through the cross and resurrection, and I would add the exaltation, is now accomplishing by the power of the Spirit and will complete in the day of Christ. It's a now and not yet reality, but we're already seeing the victory of Christ in the world, and, and we can rejoice in that and have a great deal of joy in that. Okay, in a few minutes, we're going to turn to 3, 7 through 4, 6. So we're going to kind of push the pause button here uh, because I, I just briefly, I want to deal with verse 17 and then what's going on in 3, 1 through 6. I want to kind of unpack some of the imagery here in uh, this session before we move into 3, 7 through 18, which is another just image-packed uh, section, but so important in this theme of what it, what it means to be authentic minister. So let's look at 3.17 and, uh, I'm sorry, 2.17 and following together. So let me, let me just read my translation of this. It goes back to that idea of who is qualified for this role at the end of 16. For we are not like so many hucksters who peddle the Word of God to make money. Rather, we speak with integrity, indeed, as those sent by God living before God in Christ. All right, let's talk about that just for a minute. This is one of the richest passages on Paul making distinctions between the false teachers who are kind of peddling the Word of God and himself. So let me just talk briefly about um, this idea. So he says, uh, we are not like the many. Uh, the Greek phrase there is the hoi polloi. Have you ever heard that? Uh, I mean, that's the way you would pronounce it um, in some ways in Greek. Um, he says, we're not like so many. In other words, Paul in his ministry is up against a lot of people in that Mediterranean world at the time who are taking on the name of Christ, taking on the name of Christian ministers for motives other than what Paul identifies with in his mission and his ministry. If you look at the New Testament literature, this thing of the opponents of Paul, the false teachers, pops up in a lot of places. Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul celebrates the fact that he is, even though he is in prison, that all the Praetorian Guard has heard the gospel. That would have been something like 9,000 people who were in that guard in Rome. And uh, he, he rejoices that them and, and people in Caesar's household, in other words, the, the central power structure in Rome, the gospel is permeated. Why? Because Paul's plopped down right in the middle of them as a prisoner, and uh, he, he is able to share the gospel in that context. But he immediately says there are some people who were so opposed to him, they were trying to hurt him, they were trying to uh, cause him to be um, severely damaged in his life and his ministry, but he says, but thanks be to God, whether through false motives or pure motives, at least people are talking about Christ. So uh, this thing of the opponents comes up everywhere, but the imagery that he uses here is, um, is very in interesting. He says, uh, we are not like many who are, I translated this, hucksters who peddle the Word of God. Hucksters who peddle the Word of God. The terminology uh, that, that is used here is, um, is a word that was used to describe people who were kind of retailers, secondhand peddlers. Um, it could be used of just merchants who had like street businesses and things like that, but it often was used to carry kind of a 
connotation of somebody who was a shady dealer. You didn't quite know what you were getting. It's kind of the person who is in the imagery of my culture. They have the trench coat, and they come, and they have the watches, you know, all inside their coat, and they're selling those and saying, hey, come here, I've got a deal for you. We were, we were in uh, London uh, a few days ago because we stopped over in London for a couple of days before coming down here, and uh, we were on the um, market, um, Portobello Market, yeah, we were at Portobello Market, which is basically a big street kind of um, fair with all these kind of things. And I'm hearing this bookseller, and he has some lovely old books. But this gal came up to him with these books, and so he takes one of the books and he says, let me tell you about this book. This book was, is really worth hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Every picture in this book is worth 25 pounds. If I, if I cut out all of these little uh, you know, whatever, and I'm sitting there, I didn't say anything, but I'm sitting there saying, come on, you've got to be kidding me. I hope she's not buying this, you know, uh, because he was saying, really, what you have in your hands is worth about a thousand pounds, but do I have a deal for you? Just for 1995, you know, that's, um, so, so this is the word that he is using of these false teachers. He said, we're not like these guys who are just street peddling, they're obviously motivated by money. And remember I said that these false teachers that Paul's dealing with are sophists probably. That's, that's this, these kind of professional teachers. I, I once heard, I was talking with Bruce Winter, who's written a lot about this. He has a book on uh, Paul and Philo in Corinth. Is, is, that's not the exact title, but He's dealing with the background of these types of teachers. And he said, you know, they'd come to town, they were the sharpest dressers. I mean, they just looked like the most successful people in the room. They were sharp dressers. They had powerful people. You'd see them walking down the street with the most powerful guy in Corinth. They could stand up and they would have a crowd in the palm of their hands. So they were people who could just wow the crowd. Does this sound familiar to anybody? But, but Paul said when you scrape under the knee, underneath what's going on there, what they're doing is they are selling something for their own advantage and their benefit and to enhance their status and their wealth in the world. That's what's driving them. It's what's driving them. And Paul says we are not like so many of these guys who are peddling the word of God for profit. But notice the description he gives of authentic ministry. And I think this is... Uh, just one of the richest statements in kind of a condensation of, um, of what it means to be an authentic minister. The, the Greek is laid out, he says, but as from sincerity, as from sincerity, the things that we are saying, we are sharing with you from the depths of our heart what we believe to be true about Christ and the world and about people who are lost and about the nature of salvation, but as from sincerity... But as from God, ekthau, as from God, before God, and in Christ, we speak. Now, now, let me kind of talk about a couple of those things. As from God, let me ask you, those of you who are called into ministry, who, is what, who or what is sending you into ministry? As from God, this is... Uh, an idea of source. God is the one who has propelled Paul, compelled Paul into ministry. Go back to the Damascus Road. Who is sending you into ministry? What is driving you? 
We have to go back and check our own motives sometimes. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we get into things because of our own insecurity, because of the expectations of other people. And we have, to, we have to go back and we just have to sort these things out the best we can at times to say, all right, what is driving me here? Am I saying yes to this ministry opportunity because God is calling me to it or because so-and-so is calling me to it? And Paul says that the nature of his ministry was he was from God. It was God who was the source of this. And then he uses this language of before God. What does that mean? I think that, that Paul in his ministry played to an audience of one primarily. So that when Paul stood to speak, he could see everybody out here before him. He was interacting with these people. But in the back of his heart and mind, he was thinking, I am standing before the living God and saying the things that I am saying. I am doing this before God. I am doing this before God. God is the one who I am answerable to, to whom I am answerable and so Paul, I think, was living out his life uh, under the lordship of Christ and in uh, interfacing with the living God. He was doing the things that he was doing before God. He was doing it before God. And then he says he does it in Christ, in Christ. Um, back on that, that idea of um, being before God, Milton actually said of um, a person that he was ever, he knew that he was ever in the great taskmaster's eye, speaking of God, that God was always watching what was going on, and so he was living that out, and then it was in Christ, in Christ. Uh, Paul's favorite phrase, um, I think it has strong relational overtones. The things that we do, we do in relationship to Christ uh, in the broader body of Christ, but he's saying as a person who is in this dynamic network of relationships, in my relationship with Christ, I carry out my ministry. Uh, the reason why we're able to do these kinds of uh, events, all you know, you and I are able to relate to each other immediately, immediately, because we share this common relationship in Christ. Isn't that right? The Spirit bears witness to the Word and the things that are going on. So Paul says, when, when you look at the peddlers, these are the things that drive them. When you look at authentic ministers, this is what drives them. They are sent by God. They are carrying out their ministry before God. They are living out their relationship sincerely in Christ, and that's, that's how they speak. That's how they speak. All right? Now, as he turns to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he is first picking up on some uh, interesting imagery of commendation and letters of commendation. So let's look first at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And I want to unpack some of the imagery here, and then we'll look at this lovely passage in verses 4 through 6, which is just one of my favorite passages in the whole book. So let's start with 1 through 3. Um, and he says this, now, you'll notice that your translation almost certainly starts with a question. Are we, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Uh, I'm not going to translate it that way. Listen to my translation, and I'll explain why I translate it this way. We are starting to recommend ourselves to you again. Or do we, like some, need letters of recommendation to you or from you? 
You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone, making it clear that you are a letter produced by Christ, prepared by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets of human hearts. All right, I start out uh, this passage with a statement rather than a question. I say, we are starting to recommend ourselves to you again. As I went back and I, I looked at the Greek text here, um, the grammar of this sentence is what you would see in a statement, not in a rhetorical question. Um, and I, I won't go into the details of it, but let me just kind of make my case contextually and say that it makes perfect sense if you understand the background of what commendation and self-commendation specifically was in the world at that time. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he's not saying, uh, hey, I'm kind of getting out of step here because I'm trying to recommend myself to you. No, that's exactly what he was doing, is he was commending his authentic ministry to them. And he's saying, I'm beginning to do this. I'm, I'm kind of commending myself, which was appropriate culturally, as I said yesterday, because one of the two times that it was appropriate for you to give self-commendation in the world was when the relationship had broken down and you went to the person and appealed to them and said, really, you and I should be able to get things together because these were my motives, these were the things that I was doing, and you're commending yourself and saying, would you consider that I've been a person of integrity here? We have that kind of situation in the world today, don't we? where we go and we try to reason with someone and we lay out the case and we're appealing to them, say, come on, let's get together here. So Paul says, I'm beginning to commend myself to you again, or are we like people who don't know each other at all where you need some kind of recommendation letter to introduce me to you? That's what he's saying. Because these false teachers had shown up on the scene with letters of recommendation from people, some authorities back east somewhere, we don't know who that was, but they had shown up with these credentials, if you will, saying, hey, these are, these are really good Christian ministers. And Paul's saying, look, we're beyond that. I'm your father in the faith. I founded your church. Are we really at a place where you need somebody to send letters of recommendation? No, that's not where we are. In fact, you're my letter of recommendation. Because in the world at that time, they had the same kind of situation, as I said yesterday, where, um, you know, how we send reference letters. We were talking to our daughter uh, over the last few days through um, WhatsApp, and we talked to her a little bit on FaceTime. But anyway, she was reflecting on her new job. She's a graphic designer. She's working for a large ministry in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, and she is the main graphic designer, kind of helping them with branding and stuff like that now. And uh, she was just talking about the, how the whole process of her application had gone. And there were things going on behind the scenes she didn't know about. She said, Dad, they told me that there were like 200 people applying for this position. And she said the lady that she was talking to in, with the cover letter that the person sent, the, the lady told her if there was one typo that she just put the whole application aside and went on to the next person. And my daughter said, I wrote my cover page at 2 o'clock in the morning. She said, the God is so gracious, you know, that I didn't have a typo in there. But normally, what do you send with a packet of application, even today? 
You send your own cover letter, but then what do you send? You send letters of recommendation from several different people. And they had that in the ancient world where you were commending somebody for them to be considered. But Paul says, look, I don't need that kind of thing. I am beginning to reach out to you and commend myself here, but you're my letter of recommendation. It's right there with you. And look at the imagery that he uses of the letter of recommendation. How does he describe it? He says, um, do we need letters of recommendation? Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. In other words, Paul says the ministry that's gone on among you has been a thing that has flowed from our own hearts, and they're known and read by everyone. So the Spirit of God worked in the situation so that... We carried out this ministry from the heart. We sincerely ministered to the gospel to you. You were transformed in a way that now everybody around you as the church should be able to look at you and see the manifestation of the gospel and the presence of Christ in you because of what God has done. God has written something on the world in the form of the Corinthian church. And churches at their best, and when they're what they should be, are an embodiment. They are a manifestation of the presence of God in the world. We're going to see that in the next passage when he talks about the image of glory. But Paul is saying that you are like a letter that has been posted on the world that everybody can look and see and say, look what God has done in the world. So you're our letter. And he's using this, uh, this rich letter kind of imagery, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone, making it clear that you are a letter produced ultimately by Christ, prepared by us, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets of human hearts. So a couple of different things going on here. One of the images, images that he's using here, the language may read a little bit differently in your translation. But the imagery, he's saying Christ is really the initiator of the letter, but it's been kind of uh, prepared by us, or it could be translated as delivered by us, uh, because in that day and time, you would have a person who was the, the letter writer, if you will, and then they would have what was called an amanuensis, or a scribe, who would actually write it out physically, and that person was doing the service for the letter writer. So Paul would be, in his normal letter writing, just normal letters, he would be the letter writer, the sender of the letter, but he may have an amanuensis like uh, Silas who was actually writing out the letter because he had the ability to, to write out real clearly and, and do that kind of thing. Because to be a scribe or a secretary in that day and time was a high-level skill, as I said yesterday. And it was a very expensive skill normally. So Paul is saying in this relationship of the, of the communication of the gospel, it's like Christ is the one who is sending this letter. He's the initiator of the letter, but I'm like the person who is the scribe being used by Christ for this letter coming into creation. So you are like the letter that's been initiated by Christ, that my ministry is facilitated in the gospel, and now it's like you're a letter that can be posted before the world for people to see what Christ has done. And then he shifts to this other imagery where he says, uh, this is not pen and ink. In the ancient world, when they were writing letters, they would use um, ink that sometimes was a mixture of soot and gum and oil, 
and uh, you would have a, a reed that was the pen, and that would be dipped in that ink, and it would be written out. And he said, it's not that kind of letter. It's a, it's a letter that is written by the Spirit of God, transforming the human heart, and he moves to this imagery of not written on stone. What's that, to, what's that an allusion to? The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, the, the law. So he's now moving into Old Covenant law imagery as he transitions to 3, 7, and following. Not written on stone, but written on the human heart by the Spirit of God. So, authentic ministry is something that's initiated by Christ. It's carried out by Paul to the transformation of people's lives so that they can live out that life before the world. And it's something that involves the transformation of the human heart. Is that all making sense? I know it's kind of brief, but... I hope that's making some sense. Now, look at what he says next. It's not that we are competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. Verse 4 says, Now we have this kind of confidence through Christ toward God, not that we are qualified in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our competence is from God, who also made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. Now, he's going to use this to transition into talking about the difference between old covenant ministry that we see in Exodus 34, for instance, and the nature of new covenant ministry. Uh, but here, here's a, just a word of encouragement that I want to give, and I'll see if you have any questions about this section we've dealt with very briefly here. Um, I just want to give you encouragement again, as I said along yesterday. Those of you who are in ministry, those of you who are kind of moving into ministry, there's always this, this battle of we want to be competent. We should work at study, for instance. We should work at learning how to study the Word. We should work at growing in our understanding of theology. Uh, we need to do ongoing work in learning the languages of the Bible, if we can do that, if God gives us the opportunity to do that. We have all of these different things that we need to be growing in. Some of you are very gifted in pastoral ministry, and you're growing in the skills of counseling and those kind of things. We, we want to be people who are competent, right? We want to do the best we can to give all that we can in the service of Christ for the good of the church and the building up of the kingdom of God. Would you all agree with that, that we want to be competent people? And yet, we all are constantly living with our own limitations, aren't we? And if we're not careful, uh, we can, can kind of at times get into these uh, cultural values that say it's never enough. You're never good enough. You're never able to, you know, to do what is really needed in a given situation. I struggle with that all the time. And that's when we need to come down and say, you know, it's not really about me and my competence. Ultimately, Christ is going to take me where I am as I'm faithfully follow him, following him in his lordship in the world. And he is going to use me as he will in a way that will make me competent for the moment of ministry that he has called me to. And it's not about me always having it all together. In fact, there are times that I don't have it together but Christ will use me under his lordship where I am to accomplish what he wants to in the world. And so we do kind of live with this tension 
of continuing to try to grow, continuing trying to be the people that Christ wants us to be in terms of excellence and all that kind of stuff. And we don't, as Michael was saying yesterday, sloppy thinking does no good for the kingdom of God. I mean, we, we want to make sure that we're not people who are lazy and sloppy in what we're doing. We want to do the best that we can to grow. But at the end of the day, we are not enough to transform the human heart. Only Christ can do that. And so as we are following Christ in the world under his lordship, we learn as we can, we grow as we can, and then we trust him that he is going to be adequate for the moment of ministry that needs to be done for the transformation of people's lives. And that's a, that's a delicate balance to, to find in life and ministry, where you're still growth-oriented, but you're trusting Christ. You're resting in the sufficiency of God in terms of actually being able to carry out the ministry that needs to take place. Does that make some sense? Okay. All right, let's see. Do you have questions that you want to, uh, to ask? And we're probably getting pretty close to break time here. In fact, I think we may go ahead and take a break here in just a few minutes. But do you, uh, do you have questions that you want to ask about this section that we kind of rifled through? Uh, and when we come back, we're going to move into 3.7 and following, which is so rich. Yeah, yeah. Here? Yep. Um, when Paul says in verse 6, the letter kills, what does he mean by uh, the letter? That's good, yeah. I, um, I meant, to, meant to say something about that because that's kind of introducing what he's going into with 3, 7 and following. The, spirit, the, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Very briefly, I think Paul is looking back at the Old Testament era when you have the domination of the law, and he says, look, if you just look at the narrative, I'm, I'm simplify this, but if you look at the narrative of what happened in the wilderness, for instance, what happens as you move on through the Old Testament era, uh, a lot of people die. And the outcome often is when confronted with the will of God and the law of God, um, the, the outcome is not good. The letter kills because it has this standard that is immovable, People are sinful, and sinful people meet with a bad end. And Paul's, in Paul's theology, the reason for that is they did not have the Spirit of God the way that we do in the New Covenant. And, and a big part of his theology is that um, it is only by the Spirit of God that the human heart can be transformed in a way that it can live out the will of God. Look at Romans 8. It is by the Spirit of God that we are able to live out the will of God. And so when he says the letter kills, he is saying that um, if you have a form of religion, and I think there, there is some of this going on with the false teachers as well. They have a Jewish background. Uh, what they're doing, they seem to be very harsh. If you look at uh, chapter 11, for instance, of 2 Corinthians, I think they're bringing kind of a legalism to the fore. And, and don't we see this in, in some so-called Christian ministries today too? It's all about you conforming to the standard that I set out for you right? And he says, if that's what's driving a ministry, uh, it's going to be deadly. It's going to be deadly. So he's, he's using the paradigm of the old covenant era uh, where they never, you know, if you look at the old covenant era, it's basically an era of, of failure. It's just bad and gets worse, and, and you have all these beautiful promises of what's coming, but ultimately that's going to be fulfilled with the coming of the Spirit in the new covenant in Christ. So I think that's, that's what's going on there. 
All right, other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Um, you might have mentioned this yesterday. I wasn't able to be here yesterday, so if you did, um, then maybe you could just repeat it. But in, in chapter 1, verse 12, he um, speaks about we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, yeah. uh, the ESV translation. And then sincerity comes up again now in verse 17. And I remember looking at verse 12 and those words, simplicity and sincerity, and seeing they were similar. Yeah. Is that a theme he's developing? And if so, what... What is he getting to? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, we'll even see this in chapter 4 as we get into chapter 4. He talks about them twisting words to their own advantage, the, the false teachers. So we, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, that, that one of the marks of a false ministry is people who use words manipulatively. They could even use talk about things, kind of God talk, in a way that they're kind of twisting that to their own advantage, to their advancement in the eyes of people, you know, even for profit and that kind of thing. Um, and so the sincerity means that, you know, when you sit and you talk to someone and they say something to you and, and you're getting exactly, come, it's coming from their heart, you know exactly what they're talking about. They're not trying to manipulate the situation there's an integrity to it. So we, I said with that word sincerity, it can be related to the idea of something being whole, of something being having integrity. Uh, if you remember yesterday, I used the image of the windshield, you know, that you can get a chip in the windshield and it lacks integrity so that you have more and more cracks and it collapses. Uh, and, and so Paul is saying he carries out a ministry that when, you, when he talks to them and he writes something to them, they can take it at face value. He doesn't have a hidden agenda. There's no secondary motive behind what he's doing. He's just being very straightforward with them. And so what it would mean that, um, you know, in our patterns of ministry, people be, ought to be able to look at us and say, you know, I, I trust him. I trust her. I know that if they told me that, it's true. Uh, I think of a person like, you haven't had Tom Schreiner out, I don't think. Tom Schreiner... Is, teaches at Southern Seminary. He's a friend of mine, New Testament scholar. He's one of the godliest people I've ever met in my life. I mean, just amazing, godly guy, a godly guy of integrity. If somebody told me Tom Striner said this, I would say, hey, you can take it to the bank. You know, he told me this was the reality of the situation. I trust him implicitly because I've just watched his character over a matter of years. So there's, there's a sincerity about him that just you can't fake. So that's really what, it's, what he's talking about there. And, and the difference is the false teachers come across, they, they twist words, they're putting on a show, they're trying to get people to do things so that they can advance in terms of money or position or that kind of thing. It's just not what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you guys I, ask great questions, by the way. So, okay, yeah. well, I hope this one's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in in chapter uh, in verse six, the contrast between the letter and the spirit. Yeah. I'm using the King James, yeah. and the spirit is small letter. Um, in yeah. verse three and at the end, it speaks specifically of the spirit of God, and it's obviously a capital letter. But I was just wondering. Um, about this small letter that the translators chose to 
right spirit with yeah word. and i it's been a long time since i've looked at the king james but you're saying it says the letter kills but the probably the spirit is life is that what it is Oh. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, there is that interpretation that what he's talking about here is not the Holy Spirit, but things of like the human spirit and spiritual life. It's kind of the contrast between um, legalism in terms of the outward things that you do and then spiritual things on the inside. Um I think that's what's driving that translation there. I'm not sure, but I think that's right. Um, But I think that what Paul is setting up, and we've already seen imagery that relates to the new covenant, you know, this whole thing of, of, you know, God delivering us from stone hearts, um, that's beginning to get into new covenant kind of language from Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And, um, And so... The reason why I would translate it with the capital S is because it, it's the idea that the Holy Spirit is driving new covenant ministry. It's a, it's a work of the Spirit, and we're going to see that more in 3.7 and following. But that's, that's consistent with Paul. Paul is very, very big on the idea. Of course, even in, in Romans 8, there's a question, is this small letter S Spirit or is this the Holy Spirit? I think Paul seems to consistently say that the new covenant is something that's brought about by the transformation of, the, of that third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, as he works on the human heart. And um, so that's, that's all I can offer because I don't remember what's driving that specifically. But that, that is the other interpretation of that passage, that it has to do just with spiritual things, kind of the human spirit. Oh, yeah, well, and that, that's a good point, that, that in the Greek text, you, you normally wouldn't have capitals at this point, you know, that would distinguish between the Holy Spirit and the, and the human spirit. It's just pneuma. Yeah, brother back here. When Doug Moo was here, he said, I should veto anyone sitting beyond, like, the eighth row and just not see their hands if they, answer, if they ask questions. <laughs> Yes, I found this uh, verse 4 and 5 really challenging, where Paul is attributing any success in ministry to God. And I think in ministry, as people who are in ministry, we can be ambitious. Maybe that's just the way we wired as human beings, and we want to do great things for God. But you think sometimes we're influenced by the corporate culture of numbers and profits, and we... In, in the way that we, we measure success, yeah. we forget that behind the scenes, God is the key to that success. His will will be done in terms of the growth of that particular success. How can we just guard our hearts against just being having a sinful ambition? Where we, yeah. we, we're striving for big numbers and great so-called success, but... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, th- I think, let me just say to you honestly, just be transparent with you at this point. I was co-pastor of a church for 10 years that we helped plant. And, you know, sincerely in, in planting a church and trying to grow a church, you want people there, you want the numbers, you want people giving because it's a manifestation of health and growth and that people are actually responding to the gospel. So all that's good motive. But I found that at times I had to battle against 
the nickels and noses kind of thing, you know, of saying, well, not as many people showed up today, so something's wrong. You know, giving was down this month, so what's going on with that, you know? And, you, and, and it's just very much a battle, I think, to keep our hearts where they need to be, uh, where, where it's not the measures of human success of the culture and the co- corporate culture. Um, and, and another uh, example of that is the whole social, me- social media thing. Do you guys have a big deal here with social, social media, with people tweeting and how many followers do they have on Twitter? And do you, have that? do you have that here as much? I'm sorry? Facebook and that kind of thing. Well, it's a huge, huge phenomenon among Christian ministers in the United States. In fact, uh, the last, well, when I was doing the Read the Bible for Life thing, the publisher wanted you know, me to have the, the website and Facebook page. And in fact, they had a media guy meet with me to say, here are all the things you need to be doing and how many tweets you need to be doing a day and all of this kind of stuff. No kidding. And that's a common thing now in the U.S. context where it's all about social media and building your platform. No kidding. And we left, came out of that and went to England for a sabbatical. And I got away from it for about six months. And looking back across the pond... And what was going on there, I see that there are people like my friend Trevin Wax, who is brilliant at all this, uh, Justin Taylor, they use social media really to advance the kingdom of God. They're exposing people to books, and and they're using uh, that to expose people to articles and good dialogues and all these kinds of stuff in a great way. But there are a whole lot of people that it just ends up being self-promotion. And I found that for myself, I'm not saying if you're doing this, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but you have to come before God. For me, I found that it was not healthy for my heart. I just couldn't deal with this because I'm too attracted to how am I doing by the numbers, you know, that kind of thing. And so I I think that we have to battle against the impulses of our culture that say, how many people are following me? How many people are looking at me? How many people are buying my books? All these kind of things. And we have to come back to these impulses that Paul gives that we're driven by something else in what we're doing. And, and I think a lot of times that's, that's coming before the Lord very privately and, um, and, and living that out. And I think different people have different personalities and different callings, and so some people can use the social media thing very effectively in the kingdom. And I think that, you know, it's good that they're doing that. I'm just saying that it's something that, that some of us really have to watch out for because it just, for me, it didn't sit right in my spirit what, what I was being asked to do and what I, you know, what I was trying to do for a while because that's what they wanted me to do. I had to pull myself back to the place where I said, hey, I, I'm at peace mostly when I'm just living before God and doing the stuff and writing what I'm supposed to and, and trying to be productive in that way. Does that make some sense? Yeah, and I, I know you have that impulse here in Africa as well. I know that, that, you know, at times things can kind of move to the big flashy person on the stage and, you know, how many followers they have and how loud their voice is and how much money they have. And, how, you know, I know that's one of the things that, you're, that you fight with culturally as well. And I think 2 Corinthians is a great gut check on that kind of stuff. Because Paul's pulling us back to very, very different considerations in terms of what constitutes successful ministry. Some of you will never have a, quote, large ministry, and you will be more successful before God than the person who has 10,000 people in their church. I mean that. I mean that. I believe that there are some people who we will never know their name, 
We will never know their name in 2018 or 2019. You will never hear of them. And in a sense, they'll be so much closer to the throne, you know, when we come before Christ. They'll be so celebrated because they were faithful. They were faithful in the trenches and, you know... Um, you know, so that's, that's we kind of need to get back to thinking about, okay, what constitutes real ministry? It's not always the nickels and noses that manifest that. Right. All right, let's, uh, let's take a break.